Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. They are creators of a new online rehab community designed for the intersection of the clinical and business sides of rehab. It's the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum. It's all about habits and initiatives that juice up your attendance, revenue, workflows, documentation, compliance, efficiency, and engagement while allowing your provider teams to keep their eye on the prize, their patients, and outcomes. I personally believe that a better connected rehab therapy professional has the power to help more people. So jump in, subscribe, and join the conversations today. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum at www.nethealth.com healthy. And again, you'll see stats on community members already involved, polls, write-ups, white papers, surveys, benchmarking calculators, videos, podcasts, and more. So go to www.nethealth.com healthy. All right. Now on to today's program, I'm so happy to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Elaine Lahneman. So Dr. Lahneman is the current president of AOMPT and has served two terms as secretary and chair of AOMPT International Federation of Manual Physical Therapists, Educational Standards, and International Monitoring Committee, member of the OMPT Description of Advanced Specialty Practice Task Force, and committee member and author for the 2018 revision of the Manipulation Educational Manual. She received the AOMP Mental Service Award and the 2017 President Joseph and Maureen McGowan Prize for Faculty Development from Bellarmine University, which provided the opportunity to study the history of manual therapy at Oxford University. She received her BS degree in physical therapy from the University of Louisville and her MS and DPT from the University of St. Augustine. She is the program director of the Transitional Doctor of Physical Therapy program for the University of St. Augustine. She was an associate professor for Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, and taught in the first professional program for 15 years. She has presented nationally and internationally on the topics of spinal thrust manipulation, low back pain guidelines, and leadership. She authored textbook chapters in orthopedic physical therapy and has published in the areas of spine morphology and joint manipulation. She is passionate about leadership, post-professional physical therapy education, manual physical therapy, and integrating pain and movement sciences in the clinical management of clients. She has done a lot. In this episode, we talk about the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapist Position on the Opioid Crisis, Patient Health Outcomes Following the Diagnosis of Degenerative Disc Disease and What They Think Specifically of That Diagnosis, The Use of Clinical Practice Guidelines for Low Back Pain and Physical Therapy Practice, Pain Science Education and the Treatment of Low Back Pain. This was a great episode. I am so, so happy that uh, Dr. Lahneman came on the program So everyone, if you treat patients with low back pain, which most people do, then you are going to really like this episode. So thanks everyone for tuning in. 
Hello, Dr. Elaine Lahneman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thanks. I appreciate being here. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about AOMT. We're going to be talking about degenerative disc disease. But first, I would love for you to talk about AOMT, what it is, why it exists, and what what do all those letters in AOMT stand for? <laughs> Absolutely. So AOMT stands for the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. And it's, it's an organization, it's an association that started in 1991, basically because some individuals felt like we needed um, a group that could present you know, scholarly works, that could meet, have conferences, and also test clinicians based on international um, manual therapy standards. And so that group, uh, several individuals got together, and that's, that's how it started in, in uh, Michigan, actually. So that uh, now we have represent 3,000 physical therapists. That's a lot of therapists. And how long have you been part of the organization? I've been a member since actually 1994, so quite, quite a long time. I was, I was a resident and fellow in training and became a member uh, really when it, it was beginning. So I've, I've been involved as a member and, and more recently as, as an officer. Awesome. That's great. So now let's talk about AMP's position on DDD or degenerative disc disease, which is something that I think is uh, very commonly diagnosed. I think it makes people nervous when they hear it because they hear the word disease. So can you talk a little bit about degenerative disc disease and the position AOMT has on that? Yeah, so our position is we just oppose the use of that term. Uh, it's, it's commonly used, as you said, and it's really used to diagnose an age-related condition, and, and that age-related condition shouldn't be considered a disease, it shouldn't be considered degenerative. Um, so it happens whenever they, on imaging, you see changes in the shape or the size of the, the discs in the spinal column. So that's, that's how it's identified. And the, you know, we know several things that nearly everyone's discs change over time. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that not everyone feels pain even when they have those changes in their discs. So that's, that's why, why we oppose it, or one of the reasons. So. And, you know, like we said, it is so highly diagnosed. And when people hear that term disease, they think of something that, like cancer is a disease, or Parkinson's is a disease, or a syndrome. But I think it's kind of scary terminology and words matter. So what does AOMT feel should be a better descriptor? Well, you know, I don't know that we have a descriptor in terms of a substitute, but I think, you know, patients really have the right to accurate healthcare information. And when, like you said, when they are given that diagnosis, you know, not only disease, disease puts a lot of fear in their mind, but degenerative. I mean, they start to lose hope because they, degenerative just sounds like, you know, they're going down a pathway, you know, so if they, if if it is just described as mechanical back pain or radiating back pain, um, you know, and, and our healthcare system really looks at, tries to find a tissue or a 
pathoanatomic cause for low back pain. And the research clearly indicates and has over time that it's very difficult to find a specific cause for low back pain. So we really need to move away from that model. And, um, you know, the other part of that is, is the patients lose fear, they lose hope, and they also begin to believe they can't manage their own pain. So they lose self-efficacy. And we know how important that is for our patients. And I think that's the one thing I love about our profession is that we, we really help patients manage and control their, their symptoms, their condition, and improve their function. And, and whenever they're given that label, it really, it can misguide them, you know, because they lose hope. Um, and then they might start choosing, you know, riskier treatment options. Right. Surgeries, medications, Mm -hmm. um, even less invasive procedures, things like that, that maybe may not be necessary. But like you said, if you're the patient getting this diagnosis of degenerative disc disease, it can maybe feel like you're at the end of your rope and you don't have much more to go. That's right. And, and patients need to know that their, their situation is real that they, the findings that they have, because most people are diagnosed after they've had imaging. And so it, I think it's really important that we emphasize, yes, those findings are real, but this isn't a disease and this can be managed. And you know, the other thing is that oftentimes those imaging findings stay, but their pain goes away after they're, they're treated. So you know, that sh- helps to give them some hope. I, I recently had a um, student who was 26 years old who came up to me and said, you know, I'm really concerned. I went to see a healthcare provider and because I was having some, some back pain and they diagnosed me with degenerative disc disease, what, what am I going to do? And then she just went and almost fell apart because she said, you know, I love to run. I don't, you know, I don't know what I should do. Can I continue to exercise? And I'm thinking about getting epidural injections because I don't want this to progress. And so I had to kind of step back for a minute and say, okay, just explain to me why you went, you know, tell me about your pain. Cause you're not having, she told me I'm not having pain now. She she had had pain for a week and then went in um, because her sister had structural scoliosis. So she was fearful, even though that was at 16, she was fearful that she might have a condition that would be a problem. And, and now she's fearful because she's been labeled as having degenerative disc disease. So, you know, it really, took a while to counsel her and, you know, to, to um, again, affirm these findings are real. There are changes in our discs, but these are normal changes that occur with aging and, and they shouldn't be considered degenerative. Um, the studies indicate that, you know, there's oftentimes when those findings are present, they don't correlate with the exact clinical presentation of the patient. And uh, that's what we want to get. That's the message we want to get across. And as physical therapists, we can certainly relay that message to our patients. But if the patient hears that from the physician first, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Our job becomes a little bit more difficult because now it makes it seem like we're giving two different diagnoses. And so how can, maybe it's AOMPT, maybe it's the larger APTA, maybe it's maybe it starts with us as individuals, but how can we, as the physical therapist who is maybe seeing this patient after they were given that diagnosis from the doctor, communicate to the physicians? Or, you know, because this is a medical system-wide use of terminology. 
and it really needs to change from top to bottom. And I feel like sometimes, yeah, we're, we're that point of entry, but oftentimes we're, people are coming to see us after they get that diagnosis. So how do we as a profession advocate for this change to the greater healthcare system? Well, I think we definitely need to partner with our medical colleagues, with APTA, AMT, and we are already partners, but definitely get the word out that, you know, this type of diagnosis really does misinform patients. There is research and AMT has developed a white paper that explains the research related to how this misinformation can potentially guide their treatment or lead them to choose, like you said, riskier treatment options. And, you know, one of those, obviously the opioid epidemic is something that we have to think about and not to say that it's going to lead them directly into that path, but it does, there, there has been some research that indicates that, you know, the, the healthcare costs are driven because we aren't following the practice, clinical practice guidelines for back pain. So I think the biggest message that needs to come out is we need to, um, follow those clinical practice guidelines. And I just heard uh, Tony DeLito do his keynote presentation at the Interprofessional Collaborative Spine Conference. And there were physical therapists and osteopathic physicians and chiropractors all together in a room. And, you know, it was a great opportunity to meet, you know, as partners with them. And, you know, what can we do for the greater good of our patients? And I think the biggest you know, and, and, and he actually presented some of the challenges and, and what can we do from here forward really to improve this situation? And, you know, he was talking to all of us. It wasn't just physical therapists, but one of the things that he did address was the continuity of care. And he said, it's really important that patients don't wait, that we get them in early and not that every patient with, and I don't want to, I, I want to make sure this is clear. Not every patient who has low back pain needs to be seen by a healthcare provider, whether it be a physical therapist or other conservative um, type of clinician. Sometimes that pain will go away, but if it's very intense and if it doesn't, doesn't go away, then they should seek care and it should be early. So he was talking about the continuity of care, you know, in terms of who sees the, the um, patient first and whoever does should follow the clinical practice guidelines that recognize, you know, with some time, with some activity, with some coaching, uh, reassurance, and, and a comprehensive medical exam that really does rule out a systemic cause or something um, more sinister, because that's the other thing patients are fearful. My 26-year-old student was fearful that this was something sinister. So I think that is a really important message to get out that that comprehensive physical exam can can really help to rule out some of the, the medical disorders that, you know, are, are uncommon in low back pain, but that our patients are concerned about. So, um, so continuity of care was one thing he mentioned. Oh, and the other thing he mentioned is variation in care. Of course, you know, that's a, it's a big problem because, you know, whatever healthcare provider you see with low back pain, there's a ton of variation in how, um, the, the provider is performing interventions. So, you know, he, he highlighted that and I couldn't agree more. And, and, but one of the things that he mentioned, and, you know, of course I'm president of the Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, you know, so one would think I'm going to mention manual therapy, but, but 
really it's because that is part of the clinic. Uh, one of the recommendations of the clinical practice guidelines is manual therapy for back pain. And again, not every patient needs it, um, but he mentioned, you know, manipulation, mobilization, those are forms of manual therapy along with exercise. And so I think that um, following the clinical practice guidelines, trying to reduce our, our variation in care, and also recognizing that, you know, as physical therapists, we need to refer on, or we need to know when not to treat. And when we do treat, to treat consistently and, and follow those guidelines. So that's probably a long answer to your question, but as far as the message that needs to get out, I really just think highlighting those things are, are important. No, and I don't think that was a long answer at all. I think that was a very good comprehensive answer. And, you know, we're talking about clinical practice guidelines. Where can people find these clinical practice guidelines? I know the orthopedic section of the APTA has clinical practice guidelines um, on their website. Are there other places where people can search for these guidelines? Because oftentimes we talk about clinical practice guidelines, but people are like, I don't have any idea where to find them. I don't know where to look. Well, so that's a good, a good point in terms of looking at websites. Um, you know, I think the Orthopedic Academy, their, their clinical practice guidelines follow the majority of, of, of practice guidelines that are out there. Um, the uh, American uh, Family Practice uh, Group also has clinical guidelines. Chow uh, published a group of, of, of guidelines and they're all fairly consistent uh, in turn there are some variations and you know sometimes people ask well, well why are there you know so many variations and in part of it's because the different groups there might be some bias uh, in those but it, and and that's what dr. Delito mentioned it just if you if you break them down and look at the commonalities uh, you know again at least for back pain I think those are the things that you have to look at so I know APTA has some links um, and now that you mentioned it we will we will put links on our website as well to the clinical practice guidelines um, that are out there. And we'll have a, 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 a link to this white paper um, as well that the uh, Alicia Emerson led that charge along with Gail Dial and, and Dan Roan and, and other uh, Jason Silvernell, other APTA members, AMPT members that um, work, work in this area. Yeah, because I think it's, there is a breakdown from so you graduate with your pt degree you start working and if you don't keep up you don't know where to look you're you're kind of just sort of floating along using maybe what you learned in school which is great because hopefully you won't kill anybody or do major <laughs> harm to somebody but i think when it comes to diving deeper into treatment paradigms these clinical practice guidelines people have to be proactive about that. And Absolutely. so knowing where to look and knowing where to find them is great. Um, and I also wanna to touch back on the variation of care. And when you're talking about variation of care, are you talking between physical therapists themselves or between a PT versus a doctor versus a chiropractor, uh, manual therapist versus non-manual therapist. I mean, I think there is a lot of variation to care and that can also be quite confusing to the patient. So I don't know in that uh, keynote if he sort of touched on what he meant by variation of care. 
Yeah, he met within physical therapists uh, and, or within profession and, and really looking at, you know, at all the individuals in the room, many of us are providing very similar treatment or at least are able to provide similar treatment options. And so his, his point was that, you know, we really should be looking at a more consistent care model following the practice guidelines and not um, varying to other types of, of treatment approaches that may not have the evidence. And, and so variation in care, but also that evidence, um, the, the care that is supported by the evidence. Of course. And, you know, that brings me to, this is going slightly off topic, but well, no, not really. It's still on topic. It, it reminds me of a, a post that I saw in a Facebook group of physical therapists and it was a newer-ish grad, maybe out a year or two. And he said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, um, when we advertise to the public about what we do as physical therapists, you know, everyone tends to say, you know, we're evidence-based profession. He said, shouldn't the consumer already know that? And how important is it? Like, don't you just have to do what the patient wants? Because all we're worried about is our job is to make a person feel better. So what does it really matter what you use to get them there? Meaning, yeah. does it matter if you use something that's evidence-based or not? Well, and I think, you know, part of that is patient education and having a relationship with your, with your patient so that they do trust you. So you have, you know, I think they, they have to be able to trust you and you have to develop that therapeutic alliance with them to help them understand that, you know, these are treatment options and it should be patient centered. You know, you want to be, we want to be patient centered and we want to um, help them understand though that this, these are the, the best approaches and they, and it's not a one size fits all. I mean, there are, are some outliers, but the extreme variation that has been shown is, is the problem. It's not the occasional patient who, well, yeah, sure. Maybe that, that it's more patient centered to do a different approach, but there's extreme variation. And I think even if we just uh, reduce that by 50%, I think it would make it, it would have a huge impact on care. And, and in the research that's coming out uh, out of university of Pittsburgh that, and I'm not involved with this, so I'm just, I'm, I'm just reading and, and trying to do the same thing everyone else is. Um, but there's uh, some big um, research that's coming out to talk about, that will speak to the, you know, following the guidelines when there is variation of care or if there is uh, variation of care, um, yeah, how, because, how it's different. Yeah, and I know there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that, you know, with different diagnoses, less than half of physical therapists actually follow best evidence to treat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're like, yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right. it's not, you know, and, and the thing that you mentioned before, too, is how do we avoid that? I think, as you mentioned, APTA or being a member of the American Physical Therapy Association really helped me to streamline my direction of uh, understanding. So I can go to PT in motion. I can look at, you know, there's a lot of great white papers that they have, physician statements, you know, on, on the opioid epidemic. There's just a ton of great resources there. Um, it was another thing that I would emphasize for clinicians. Yeah, because, you know, it, in the end, it's, it's, you want to 
treat people using best evidence. You know, and I think it was a Jason Silvernail in a comment said something, again, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of, why would I waste my time doing something that I know doesn't have evidence behind it when I could be spending that time, precious time with our patients? Sometimes you get an hour, sometimes a half an hour, sometimes 15 minutes, right? right. So why would you waste that precious time on something that you know doesn't have the evidence behind it? when instead you can be doing something that has been shown to help. And, right. and that goes back to, and then you'll hear the argument against that was like, well, the patient really wanted it. So I'm, that's how I'm developing my therapeutic alliance. Yeah. But I, I would still argue against that, you know? And that's where, like you said, patient education comes in. You want to explain to the patient, hey, listen, I understand that you like treatment XYZ, but right now we know that treatment ABC is more appropriate for you given where you're at and explain to them why. And I've done that plenty of times and patients are like, okay. <laughs> so, right. And, and then and, there's an opportunity to negotiate. You know, if, if, let's just try this. If it doesn't work, you know, this seems to be more effective and, and, and it is more efficient. And like Jason said, why, why would you waste your time and their time? You know, and that's what I tell the patient. I respect your time and this is what we understand and this is what we know at this point and is best care. So, you know, if you're willing to go along with me on this, you know, I think we can try it out. And if it doesn't work, you can fire me. Uh, you can find another physical therapist or, you know, we, I'll, I'll find you someone that is, mm -hmm. it works, you know, or, and, or the treatment, you know, so yeah, I think you have, we really have to think about that. Yeah. And I think in, like we said in the beginning and going back to degenerative disc disease, words matter. Mm -hmm. right? And how you explain things matter. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and be right back. Are you interested in a free opportunity to check in with the latest thoughts of other rehab leaders? Well, I've got one for you. There's a new online rehab therapy community designed for the intersection of the clinical and business sides of rehab. It's the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum. Catchy name, right? It's all about habits and initiatives that juice up your attendance, revenue, workflows, documentation, compliance, efficiency, and engagement, while allowing your provider teams to keep their eye on the prize, their patients, and outcomes. I personally believe that a better connected rehab therapy profession has the power to help more people. Jump in, subscribe, and join the conversation today. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum at www dot nethealth.com slash healthy. Well, and Michelle Beatty just um, published a systematic review in spine that um, is, she looked at the term degenerative disc disease and the, the name of the article is what's in a name and, and also found that there's so much variation in what, you know, healthcare providers are calling degenerative disc disease. And, you know, in summary, found that it's just, it's inconclusive and it's not, it's not a, um, there's not evidence to support this as a disease and there's so much variation in it that they also recommend um, not, not using it as a, as a term. And so from, we talked about from a, a sort of 30,000 foot view as to what associations can do to kind of help clean up terminology, this kind of medical terminology. 
And that made, like you said, partnering with our physician colleagues, um, partnering with maybe our chiropractic colleagues to kind of change the narrative. But what can, for all the listeners out there, let's say you're an individual therapist, what can you do to kind of help change the narrative around that term degenerative disc disease? So your patient comes into you, they're fraught with worry. What can you do? You know, I think the biggest thing is to get our patients as our advocates. And so taking the time to educate them about it and say, yes, you know, this is real. Your changes are real. This isn't a disease and to help them to understand that. And then, then give them the tools, you know, say, Hey, you know, when you go back to your physician or your other provider, whoever referred, or maybe they didn't refer, you know, get the word out to these medical providers, get the word out to, you know, senators, legislators, um, and, and because they're speaking to them as well and support, you know, support this aspect of, you know, whether it's conservative care, um, you know, and, and also we having pamphlets or educational materials, you know, that really do talk about, you know, if you are referred to a physical therapist first, that there's, I believe it's an 89 point something percent less likelihood for that patient to be prescribed opiate opiates in, in the following year. And that's, that's a huge uh, statistic in yes. terms of, you know, and everybody's concerned about the opioid epidemic right now. So, you know, following practice guidelines and, and physical therapists are, are, should be considered, you know, first primary con contact providers. And we can do a comprehensive medical exam. We can screen. We know when not to treat. We know when to refer on. Um, and, and following those, those guidelines, I think is, the other part of what I educate my patients about. So I would say, you know, th these are the guidelines and having this, this material. So if you're interested in, in sharing this with other people and, you know, there's certain patients that are more vocal than others. And whenever I hit those patients, I really get them and hit them hard and say, you know, help share this information. If, if, if you found this valuable, you know, please um, advocate for not only yourself, but for the next person that comes down the road so they don't have to worry that they're a 26-year-old now and they have this, this, you know, this label. Yeah, yeah, this quote-unquote disease mm -hmm. that is, is not. <laughs> that is not. All right, so is there anything else that, from your perspective or for AOM's perspective, that we missed that you're like, you know, I really want, whether it be other physical therapists or healthcare providers, even the general public to know. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that I, I'm clear on this. I'm not saying that imaging isn't useful um, because, you know, I've, I've talked a little bit on the downside of it, um, you know, but in the absence of trauma or any other systemic medical uh, concern, Imaging studies aren't necessary for, you know, low back pain. Uh, a comprehensive medical exam is. So I think that's something that I would, I would like to emphasize. But there are times when imaging is necessary. And I don't want to come across as, as saying that, you know, we're, we're downplaying it all the time. Because sometimes it, it certainly is necessary. Um, but I think that, you know, the biggest thing that People understand it is that these are common age-related changes in the spine. They don't necessarily correlate um, with symptoms, you know, and that's a hard, 
it's, it's hard for the patients to understand and providers because we are so focused on finding, you know, some type of pain generating tissue as, as the cause, you know, so sometimes I'll share stories too with patients and say, you know, if I, um, because they've, they've, they've now got this disease, they've got imaging, they've got findings, and, and you have to kind of talk them off the ledge to a certain extent. And I say, you know, if I had a group of 20-year-olds, 120-year-olds in a group, and then I have a group of 80-year-olds, 180-year-olds on, on the other side of the, of the room, and none of them have back pain. Now they may probably, 90% of us have back pain at some point in our life, but at this point in this room, none of them have back pain. But then if I sent them all into the MRI or imaging room, then 37% of those 20 year olds would come back with degenerative changes in their, their spine or changes, positive findings. And if you then look at the 80 year old group who then goes in and has the MRI, that number goes up to 96%. So that, that kind of gives them a little bit of a balance. So I guess that's the other thing I would share, you know, just that these findings on imaging don't necessarily have to lead individuals to go down a path for riskier treatment options. I think that's a great, that's a great statistic. And thanks for sharing that because now that's something that if there are any therapists listening, they can kind of use those statistics to say, Hey, listen, this, this is common as you get older. And I think, you know, the one, the downfall that I can see from having this conversation with the patient is then the patient saying, so you think it's all in my head. Right. And, and that's what I emphasize. Yeah. No, it's real. It's real. Yes. Yeah. So that's why I'm glad that you said like, listen, your pain is here. It's real. You're experiencing this. This is not made up. But Absolutely. let's see if we can... Like you said, follow the, these guidelines, get you to move, do exercise, feel more comfortable in your body in order to help reduce your symptoms, reduce the pain. Because I know, I mean, when in my early days of explaining things like that to patients, I've had someone say, so it's all in my head. And I was like, oh, that is not what I meant. I definitely screwed that up. And with experience, you learn, right? You learn how to do that better. You learn how to relate to the patient. And the best thing to do, like you said, is to use stories and to use statistics and to use metaphors and things like that so that people can kind of understand where you're coming from. But yeah, that's the only downfall that I could think of. That's someone well, playing devil's advocate here, right? That's absolutely. Different. Yeah. And I think as physical therapists, we have to kind of get outside of ourselves. Yes, we know that pain is, you know, it may begin in the brain and the synapses and all of that, but do we really have to say that specifically to, to the patient? Can't we just say, you know, it's a normal, natural physiological response. You have it, what you have is real. And it's impacted by a lot of things. It's a complex issue that what you have is real. And I will, I've never argued, that was probably some of the best advice I learned in my fellowship training. When the patient has pain, and this was way back when, before a lot of the pain science researchers <laughs> came out, but when the patient says they have pain, it is their pain. That is what they have. And, and you don't argue with them about that. Um, you know, regardless of what type of physiological response you're seeing, what they have is real. And so, yeah, I, I, but I do, I hear what you're saying about the, the downside of it. Yeah, they do have physiological changes, but pain is a complex um, matter. 
well, thank you for, uh, for all of that info. And I think that this will definitely give therapists something to think about. It'll give therapists a great way to move forward with treatment. Um, people now know how to access some clinical practice guidelines. And that leads me to the last question for you. And that is knowing where you are now in your practice and in your life, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad fresh out of physical therapy school? I would probably recommend to take more time to reflect on my patients, not necessarily bringing them home, but to take a little more time to reflect on the things that they said uh, personally related to their care um, and also reflect on uh, outcomes to a greater degree. Great advice. I, I always say I, I would like to go back to my patients in my early days and just be like, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was doing the best I could with the information at the time, but you know, of course, as you gain more knowledge, you gain more experience, you look back on things and you're like, oh man, I could have done that better. But that is part of that reflection process. So you look back on patients and you reflect and you think, hmm, you know, maybe I could have done X, Y, and Z. So then the next patient comes along and you do better. So I think that's great advice. I love it. Well, and thanks. we're yeah, where can people find more information about AMPT and more information about you if they have questions or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. So um, the AMPT uh, website is www.aampt.org. And you can certainly email me. I am at elonneman at usa.edu. I'm happy to answer any questions or talk to you more about um, the Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy, uh, APTA, where to find guidelines, um, research on low back pain. It's just something I'm very passionate about and always enjoy talking about and working with patients with as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for coming on, sharing all this info. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thank you to Dr. Elaine Lahneman. And of course, a thank you to our sponsor, NetHealth. And again, if you want to sign up and for a free opportunity to check in with the latest thoughts of other rehab leaders, check out the online rehab community designed for the intersection of clinical and business sides of rehab. It's the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forum. You'll see stats on community members already involved, plus some news, new polls just launched that I'd love for you to weigh in on. You can expect write-ups, white papers from leading-edge performers, polls, surveys, benchmarking calculators, videos, podcasts, and more. So jump in, subscribe, and join the conversations today. You can find the Rehab Therapy Operational Best Practices Forums at www.nethealth.com healthy. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and don't forget to follow us on social media.